The Eastern Cape is one of South Africa's more troubled provinces. Historically, an amalgamation of the old Cape administration and then two apartheid-era Bantustans, the Siskai and the Transkai. It's produced a, an administration in the contemporary period, which is especially prone to uh, corruption, uh, serious service delivery problems, and in the context of COVID-19, uh, some of the worst institutional crises around, around health provision, around the collapse of hospitals, etc. From our purposes for today, uh, local government in, 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 in the Eastern Cape is especially troubled, but also the perspective from local government provides a very interesting insight, perhaps a microcosm, of, of how governance is working in South Africa as a whole. Welcome to Filling the Gap, a podcast about government and potentially how to fix it. Dr. Ivor Chipkin is one of the country's best social scientists. He is the founder of the Public Affairs Research Institute at Wits University, and today he runs South Africa's first global think tank on government, GAP. He's the author of two books on government and one of the country's deepest thinkers on government and how to fix it. We don't have a capacity problem in this country. We have a problem of intention. So the people that were being appointed into this administration were capacitated in a very particular way. They were capacitated in order to process certain transactions and they just didn't quite frankly care about a lot of their core service delivery functions. That's the voice of Dr. Crispian Olver. He was the Director General for the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism when I first met him. But before that, the medical doctor was a well-known act political activist in the Eastern Cape. He helped draft some of the legislation we're talking about today and has held numerous high-profile roles in government. In 2002, he coordinated the hosting of the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg. He's now an academic and author of two books about local government and how they go wrong, sometimes quite dramatically. His book, How to Steal a City, published in 2017, is a gripping insider's account of the corruption in Nelson Mandela Bay, formerly known as Port Elizabeth. It lays bare how the administration was entirely captured and bled dry by a criminal syndicate and how factional politics within the ruling party abetted that corruption. Crispin was also there when, the local, when local government legislation was written and has first-hand knowledge of why so much power was devolved down to the lowest level of government. And he knows what went wrong. We'll be joined later by Professor Mbisind Lechana from the University of Johannesburg. I was part of the original team of, of policy wonks inside the ANC that were pushing very hard for local government to be given independent constitutional powers and protections. And it was all part of a push at the time for what we call developmental local government. So we had this idea that local government is where government's closest to the people and it's where the real development stuff happens and you want to put fiscal policy and resources down into the hands of local authorities so that they can drive change and make it happen. Um, at the time, we didn't really think too much about what happens when things go very wrong. So a lot of effort was put into protecting the constitutional status and powers and functions of local government. Um, and we created, you know, de novo, this wall-to-wall -wall local government system, uh, sometimes in places where there'd never, never been local government before. And even where there was local government, we were coming from a very racially divided 
institutionally split kind of local government that didn't really work in the new South Africa. So, you know, I think I think the original drafters, um, and I, you know, take blame partly on myself for this, were naive in not thinking through carefully how things go wrong, what to do when local government fails, um, and what checks and balances to put in place. So, Crispin, of course, uh, that's how <laughs> I was one of those naive people. I was, that's how I think we, you and I first met those many, many years ago. I was a, a lighty, and I'd been brought in with uh, Tsapisa Masanini to write the white paper on local government. Um, and I think you were, the, you were the DG at the time. Um, I remember some very stressful meetings with uh, Praveen Gordon at the uh, Gordon in those days, but you were you were heavily involved, and I think there was there was a tremendous naivety in writing that document. And as I recall it, there were those fierce debates around uh, developmental local government and what its particular characteristics were in relationship to the private sector. But really, what animated all of us, I think, was a deep sense that real democratic momentum lay in local government. Uh, after all, the 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 revolt that had brought the apartheid down in the 1980s was largely an urban revolt. It was largely or substantially driven by local government issues. So there was a sense that the real democratic momentum in South Africa came from the local. And I think, as a, well, I certainly in my mind, I was thinking that the autonomy of local government was designed to protect that area of, of democratic, uh, democratic momentum or that space of, of democratic uh, uh, mobilization. That was certainly how I was thinking around it. And of course, I think you're absolutely right. We, we never for, well, not for many moments, did we think of things going terribly wrong other than in relationship to traditional government. And I mean, that was the great preoccupation. So if you look at the white paper on local government, we steered away, steered far away from dealing with traditional government because we thought that was going to be the area of, 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 of where things might, might, uh, might go wrong. The reason I wanted to have this conversation, and I hope BC is able to jo jo join us, because after all, we have, we have one of these really fortunate uh, uh, serendipitous moments where we've got two books on the same subject coming out by two by two really astonishing and accomplished uh, writers, scholars, uh, activists. One by Mbisi Mlechano, who's one of South Africa's great uh, political scientists, and of course uh, by Crispin Olver, by yourselves. Both on both on uh, Nelson Mandela City, both on PE, both in a similar time frame. And I'm hoping we could, we could have a conversation. Why I think that that conversation on municipalities is so important currently, because it seems to me your book shed light on what is South Africa's currently, I believe, the most acute question being posed, and that is, why is it so difficult to execute execute policy? So there's a we now currently are sitting with two major uh, uh, economic plans, one from uh, the presidency, one from business. Amazingly or strangely alike in all in in, in key areas around uh, growth through large scale infrastructure development. There's some difference around uh, how you finance this. So around the planning, there seems to be lots of consensus around what we need to do. But what our record is in terms of doing things, well, that's an altogether different story. Now, it seems to me that uh, your experience, and to some extent my experience, I think is an opportunity to start raising questions about why it's been so difficult in South Africa to move from plan to, to execution. And that's really what I'd like to discuss in today's session with you. The political party in power in Nelson Mandela Bay was the ANC. And they'd been in power there since the dawn of democracy, uh, the metro had been created in in the year 2000, bringing together 
Utenhag uh, and uh, a number of the sort of far-flung townships in PE. So there's this large metro authority created. And initially, it, it functions really well. You've got this, the first black mayor, Bafaku. He's a, a sort of strong regional leader. He's quite visionary. He's got this 2020 plan for the city with a whole lot of spatial development areas. He wants to remake the harbor and reconfigure the freeways and bring uh, development into a whole lot of nodes around the city. But what's happening in the ANC is that it becomes increasingly factionalized. And it's, I suppose, part of a broader countrywide trend where to get ahead in the ANC, for a political leader to emerge and succeed, you've got to be able to build a following. Uh, you've got to, you, you need loyalty, and that loyalty has to be bought. You, you need to bring resources to the table that enable people to organize, to get airtime, to get T-shirts and banners. And those resources are few and far between. You know, we uh, often didn't really think about how political parties are meant to be funding themselves. Um, nationally, they're, you know, large corporates with deep pockets that uh, do back political parties for particular reasons. But in a sort of the Eastern Cape backwater, um, most of these are small or medium-sized businesses, and they're wanting to do deals. Um, they're not going to give money for nothing. So they want promises of favors and contracts. And for political leaders that you know aren't adept at navigating this thing, they get slowly sucked into a whole range of deals and promises and backhanders, uh, some of which you know they use for organizing and Often some of it they use for advancing themselves or, uh, you know, accumulating their own wealth. Um, so there's, there's this interplay between resources and power. And it inevitably washes into the state. And what starts to happen from about 2007 is you get an increasing factionalization and it's it's linked into battles that start to take place between Tabo and Becky nationally and Jacob Zuma. Um, uh, I mean, uh, when I came into PE, there were at least three different factions, um, the most prominent of which had this uh, endearing name of the Stalini faction. Uh, that was the group that Nebefaku was attached to. In case you think communists invaded a small province in a windy city, it's actually the name of a public hall where people used to meet socially called Estalini. It means a stable. They used the local state as a piggy bank. It, you know, uh, they uh, essentially saw all these big infrastructure programs as sources of rent and uh, established political control over the machinery of the local state in order to channel resources back into their political base and to build their political followings. What I enjoyed so much about your book was that the Stalini faction wasn't just a bunch of, of, of people pursuing self-enrichment. They were pursuing what they understood, according to you, as a program of radical transformation within, 
within the city within the city itself. The fact that some of them became became very wealthy doesn't detract that there was detract from the fact that there was a genuine political ambition behind behind their operations. So I'm fascinated in these narratives. You know very very well that in the course of the work that I was doing on state capture in the Betrayal of the Promise report. Uh, we argued, and we took a lot of flack for it, but I stand for it. I stand by that argument that state capture wasn't simply driven by by looting and corruption. That those involved, including the president, including President Zuma, weren't just motivated by greed and self enrichment, but rather they were seeking. I think, in good faith, I've made that point many times. In good faith, uh, a policy, a, a political program of radical economic transformation, using the state and enterprises to disrupt the existing structure of the economy and create space for new black-owned and black-empowered enterprises. So what I've always argued, and I think you're saying something similar, is that self-enrichment and a political program are not mutually exclusive, and one has to think of the relationship between the two. And it seems to me that that relationship sits uncomfortably where, with the current discourse in South Africa, which has become especially strong in the last 18 months or two years, around that essentially what we're dealing with in state capture or with, a, with, the, with, with the South African history, even going back into the apartheid period, is essentially one long history of shocking, shocking, shocking corruption. So how do you, what, what's your sense of that? Sure. So uh, I, I completely uh, get the point you're making about ideology. Um, and I think it's fascinating the way you know, for, for members of a faction, uh, they believe fervently in what they're doing. So the, 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 the narrative that people tell themselves is internally coherent. They, you know, it makes sense to them and it directs their actions. But we obviously need to be critical of that narrative. Um, and, for me, the the very stark element was that while Stalini believed in, or the narrative they peddled was one of transformation and development and bringing town and township closer together, um, uh, what they were doing was extracting too much out of these programs for them to be able to be able to deliver anything substantively. So the bus rapid transit system, which was key to bringing township residents closer, you know, uh, in terms of uh, space and commuting time, um, never got underway while the ANC was in power. It was only when the DA came in with their coalition that they finally got a portion of the BRT system running. Um, and the real quest for Stalini was a quest for power. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I think we've, we've got to accept that the, the ideology that they had was, uh, in a sense, a fig leaf for un underlying, uh, w what there was, which was a hunger for power and a hunger for resources to sustain that power. And it seemed to me as a sort of self-defeating pursuit. Except that this idea of pure raw power, I think, is, um, is unlikely. Almost certainly all 
pursuit of power, even corrupt power, needs to be somehow justified uh, politically. Uh, this is one of the key arguments of Piketty's new book, for example, and his notion of an inequality regime. Ultimately, all forms of inequality, all forms of, of, of wealth distribution need somehow to be uh, politically justified. And therefore, those, that political justification essentially requires ideology. I think this is, that ideological aspect is often what is missing in South African conversations about corruption and about theft for, of public sources for, sources, for example. And I think it's one of the key areas which I'd like to discuss more fully in the course of this podcast. How is corruption? How is inequality justified in the South African context? We are very lucky to be also be joined by Professor Mbisin Lechana, whose new book, The Anatomy of the ANC in Power, uh, also focusing on, on Nelson Mandela and covers more academically very much of the same ground that was covered in, um, in, in, in Chippy's book. Professor Lechana also investigates wholesale corruption in the Eastern Cape. He is currently a professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Johannesburg, and uh, many of you will know him also for his very public uh, public role as a public intellectual, both on TV and on and, and in print. Obviously, great to have you on board. The book is really, I mean, it covers a 29-year-long period, uh, beginning in in roughly late 1989 to to 2019. Uh, it's mainly looking at the decline, what accounts for the decline. And obviously, to understand the decline, one needs to understand how the ANC was at that point of re-establishment. Um, and so, you know, you then you kind of look at the structures, uh, how these structures were, were established, what was the attraction to the ANC, what were the traditions of the ANC that were resumed after 1990. And, and and once you look at that, especially between 1990 and 94, you see the decline as there's an there's a level of inevitability to the decline of the ANC uh, because you know it attracts almost everybody, and this is the story about liberation movements, um, big parties uh, that at some point you have these factions uh, along different uh, interests. Um, because it's a liberation movement that attracts everybody. So the very thing that makes it popular, uh, meaning a liberation movement, also in a way creates the seeds, so to speak, of its own destruction. And, and that's what would happen to the ANC with all these contending, contending factions, some less committed to the ideas of the, of the organization than others. But the critical thing, I think just two last points on this, uh, is, one, we, 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 it's not sufficient to, to decry corruption. And I think everyone, uh, you know, disapproves of corruption. But the idea is to understand how, is, how does it start and what's, what makes it normal and, and, and thereby difficult to uproot. Uh, and the problem here has to do with the legislative framework and institutions. Um, in that, in 95, uh, in fact, beginning with the TLC in May of 94, the new councillors inherit apartheid legislation, um, which, you know, allowed councillors to, to serve on tender committees and award tenders to themselves to, uh, to set up companies and bid for work. So this is an old apartheid legislation because local government legislation at the time had not been transformed. You didn't have new legislation. So you have, you know, 
and and this thing gains momentum after 95 elections so you have all these councillors pretty much each has his own company and the the temptation to do that was quite great because at the time they only got stipends they didn't really have serious salaries uh, and their offices their their positions allowed for it so they become entrenched in 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 uh, in business practices of course, the law changes after 2000 with the introduction of Structural Act and Systems Act and, and MFMA, which creates a clear division between administrative and political functions. But these folks have become so entrenched in business that they now shift the focus uh, because they, 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 they are no longer part of tender committees, which meant that they could not influence the award of tenders. They then redirect their focus towards influencing the choice of managers, because if you have your manager, uh, it then means that that manager will influence uh, these tenders in your favor. So the fight, the fight that you subsequently see, especially when uh, MFA was fully implemented after 2004, that instability over city manager, executive directors has to do with councillors fighting over who should be manager because Whoever has a manager there is guaranteed of tenders. So it's, it's failure initially of legislation to regulate and determine proper behavior for these new institutions. So there was a lacuna there that was exploited and then evolved into, into practices with vested interest. So when legislation was already in, it then became difficult to change because they had become accustomed to this practice. And the second thing uh, on this one last point is the party, right? I think one has to understand that that institutions are made up of individuals uh, and at times uh, individuals have their own interests that may not necessarily be aligned to the organization. So the extent to which an organization is able to function well it depends on how well it enforces its rules. Uh, I mean, that is why there's a difference between an, an organization and, and an institution. An institution is far more evolved than an organization with clear set of rules, habitual behavior. Everything is accepted and complied with a second nature. With the ANC, right, um, you have a strong character like Neva Faku. Uh, by the way, who was supported by the Communist Party because never Fako as a national figure, as a national organizer, he could not contest office. So he came in as, a, as an SACP candidate, interestingly, from 94, right? So Ngaba is this strong personality, uh, you know, believes quite highly so in his, in his abilities and has little respect for people who don't read or don't seem to know much. Um, and so he becomes somewhat autocratic, takes unilateral decisions without consulting caucus and this and that. So then in that case, obviously the responsibility falls on the leadership of the party to rein in his excesses. But the party itself fails to do that because they are in awe of Ungeba. They didn't think that there was anyone who could do the same or better giraffe's performance, right? And, and at the time, interestingly, especially in 98, 95, uh, Matlapwa, who was secretary, provincial secretary of the ANC, they, they knew that Nweba was prone to this autocratic behavior, but they, they actually liked it because they felt that the, the ANC needed to fast track, uh, transformation. 
And especially at that time, we were going to have a merger in 2000 of Udenage and Dispatch into a metro. So they needed someone quite forceful, actually, a forceful figure to lead that merger and, 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 and fast track transformation in PE. So remember, even though the ANC says it's a democratic organization, at the same time, they quite liked his strong arm tendencies because they, they, they were also critical of the long consultative processes in the ANC. So preferred this strong man figure. So you have tension there evolving. So, in closing here on this point is that you have the ANC never quite adapted into being a party in government. Um, you know, providing leadership, developing ways of dealing, creating sufficient or effective coordination between headquarters and government. And most importantly, ensuring that you are able to rein in Strong, um, uh, I mean, strong, strong figures who have the propensity to veer off party policies. Crispin, do you want to respond to that? Because it seems to me that there's a, there's a tension between what uh, there's a tension in the book with, with regard to that around this, this 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 question of what we what we might call what we might call ideology. What, what strikes me around about your presentation, obviously, which is completely fascinating, and I mean, I haven't finished the book, but I'm, I'm working through it, um, is what happened to the idealism of 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 the of of activists etc from in an earlier period i mean their transformation into what you call unscrupulous individuals seems to be so absolute and so rapid that it's a little bit bewildering and uh, and um, one is one is one is struck by the by by the kind of depravity of it all, and that's that's the sense that I'm getting from your analysis. So, what has happened to that that deep sense of idealism, that deep commitment to to a politics of transformation, of liberation, of of a politics of dem of democratization, of, of non racialism, etc.? Was that all in in Chippy's in Crispian's terms earlier? Was that just a fig leaf for crass accumulation? No, I think I mean the party. Obviously, there was that there was that commitment. Um, but I think the 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 offering of of government, the layer of material benefits, I think got the better of them, especially because you did not have a strong uh, monitoring kind of function, uh, kind of a vanguard uh, element to it to ensure that leaders um, stick to parties' values and. For instance, you didn't have, they developed a code of conduct, uh, but that code of conduct was never implemented. Uh, and uh, partly, uh, Ivo, the main issue, I think the problem here was the co-option of, of the ANC by and large into government processes. Um, so, because the party was meant to remain quite strong outside as a monitoring coordinating body. Uh, and this is what Tabon Beggy talked about in a discussion judgment towards, towards December 94, uh, conference that you need to have party remaining outside quite, quite strong to exercise oversight and ensure that people abide or follow ANC values and comply with ANC policies. But all these headquarters from national, provincial to even to, uh, standard house were quite weak. 
Um, I mean, if you if you look at Mbeki's and WC, for instance, most of them were ministers. Uh, you know, Lutuli House was left, or Shell House at the time, was left pretty much empty. Um, the same applied with Talata House, provincial house in PE. It was quite weak. The REC in in the old Cape then was even worse because you, at the time also you didn't have the moral influence of of, of Govan Beke, who was part of that Omre as well, were part of that REC, right? Um, so everybody is consumed with with government and the opportunities that are offered by government. And I mean, you have folks here who didn't have salaries, you know, frankly. Uh, and, and the fact that it was it was allowed by law, this is the thing. It's allowed by law for them to form companies. So this is legitimate business. But it started off as legitimate, but it then, and, as, and also as a way of making extra income, but they they then get drawn into these these businesses to a point where you have a serious fallout in 1999. For instance, the 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 plot where you have uh, the boardwalk complex now in the waterfront where it's built, there was a huge fight in the ANC in 99 over two factions um, that owned parts of that plot uh, in the waterfront, and and the the whole issue was that um, each faction in the ANC was using. Uh, its own influence in government to to enable it to buy the plot, right? So this business interest in the ANC become so entrenched and it creates a precedence, um, you know, that gets followed up even after 2000. Then you have this thing that is our turn now to, and and, but the point is that the party is never able to exercise its moral influence over its employees because government just took over. Might I say that? I mean, I, I think you see that's a, that what you're saying is is pretty much a, a microcosm or perhaps a macrocosm of what's happened all throughout South Africa, and that and that this one very detailed example of of how all of this governance broke down from apartheid era legislation stipends instead of salaries uh, entrenched factions fighting amongst each other for ideological beliefs in a way that kind of sums up the state of of politics in south africa doesn't it well yeah no it does i mean that's 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 what has become uh, i mean the the uh, you know the violent part of our politics now is even more pronounced in KZN. Uh, so, so you see this, I think, playing out everywhere. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, just to uh, come in on that, I mean, the, the the capacity issues in in local government, and and particularly as we encountered them in Port Elizabeth, are very revealing, because it's not just that the municipality's capacity <clears throat> has been deliberately weakened. It's it's uh, capacitated in a different way. So, uh, Mkabisi talked about this controlling of the appointment of, of aligned managers. And I came up against this, uh, management team appointed by the Stalini faction who were, I must tell you, extremely capable at processing certain transactions. Um, uh, there's this, a brilliant transaction. In fact, it's written up in the Piccoli forensic report. 
where they process a really complex payment for the bus rapid transit system that would ordinarily take a month all the way through procurement and legal and through the technical evaluations and all the way through to budget and treasury and then ultimately payment. They do all of that in 24 hours, um, uh, which you know I've used as an example to say we don't have a capacity problem in this country. Uh, um, we, you know, we have a problem of intention. Um, so the, the people that were being appointed into this administration were capacitated in a very particular way. They were capacitated in order to process certain transactions. Um, uh, and they just didn't quite frankly care about a lot of their core service delivery functions. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to comment uh, on Ngeba Faku, who, I mean, I, I think as you can hear from both Mkubisi and myself, he's a fascinating character. Um, and I'd encountered him when he was serving as mayor in his first term and really fell in love with him. I, you know, I thought, here's a clear, strong-minded, strong-willed mayor with a vision for what he wants to do with the city and he's getting things done. Um, and, you know, I suppose similarly to some of the provincial leadership, uh, I was prepared to turn a blind eye to some of his more autocratic tendencies. The big change that I saw was when he stood down as mayor, but he retained the role of regional chair. And what Two things happened. The one is that he developed uh, business interests. So he went in, he had a construction company, um, he was setting up a whole lot of different things. Um, but he also got used to giving instructions from the ANC regional office. And it became the classic case of the municipality and core administrative and operational decisions being made in the ANC's offices and then simply passed down as instructions to, you know, the apparatchiks employed in the municipality. And Neba found over time that, you know, if the mayoral committee members didn't do what he wanted, he simply called the officials directly and gave them instructions. And I think that's when things really started to fall apart. Can I play devil's advocate here, if you don't mind? So this is how I understand the large arguments that are being developed here. There are various uh, interests, uh, class interests, uh, group interests, uh, social groups. Um, they join the ANC, perhaps in good faith initially, but soon realize that the ANC is a route into various forms of accumulation by, their, by the ability of the ANC to appoint them to key positions in government. They then use that relationship to accumulate or to loot or to take or to steal large resources of, of, of within the state to in, to enrich themselves. Uh, there may be a little bit of uh, there may be a little bit of political um, goodwill involved in the process, but largely this is a process of of what Carl von Holt once called uh, um, class elite accumulation. So is that largely the argument? Because if it is the argument, what surprises me is the short-sightedness of this particular group of people. Because it seems to be that very, very quickly, in a very, very short space of time, if this is what they're doing, they wreck the very apparatus which, is, which they need in order, to, in order to accumulate. 
it's very, very quickly that these, the, the, the institution of the municipality uh, goes into fundamental crisis in which the kinds of resources which, which might have been available in the past are suddenly not so much available now. Or they create a situation of such intense and violent competition that not only are their livelihoods at risk, but their very lives are at risk. This seems to be a, a political way of operating which is so short-sighted and dysfunctional that I'm kind of, kind of wondering if these people are not somehow crazy. Well, it's not. It's not entirely that. It's also apart from from livelihoods, uh, business interests. It also has to do with self-protection, avoiding going to prison, uh, because they, you know, the Piccoli. Firstly, the the Kabosa audit report that reveals all sorts of corruption when Labour was implicated. Uh, the Piccoli report does the same thing. So. You have folks here who who think that the only way they can avoid going to prison, obviously, firstly, is to make sure that the charges don't make it to the authorities. You don't have a case and all that. But they are only able to do that, try to destroy evidence and mess, uh, mess with witnesses. You can only do that if you are still in charge of the municipality. So at some level, it becomes an issue of self-protection, not to go to prison. Um, so, because the stakes are quite high. And and, and added to that is, is the, the law of money is not just about for, for self-interest, for your own livelihood, but it's also about getting elected. Uh, because the ANC itself is, is corrupted. They, the party's electoral processes are corrupted. Uh, branches are no longer really genuine branches. You buy branches. Um, you know, so the, the, the possibility of profiting from office makes office so important that you are willing to do anything to get into it, including creating your own branches, buying people. So you need money for that entire infrastructure. I mean, it's amazing that if you go to PE or any other township uh, before conference, either regional, provincial, or even national, you'll see how much money is injected into the local economies. Everyone has money. Uh, they have phones, they have cars, everyone is drinking fancy whiskey, you know, uh, because of, of, of monies that primarily come from, from government to finance these campaigns. And then you asked earlier, Ivo, how then do you stop it? Why is it allowed to continue? Uh, and, and, and this relates to the question that Toby asked earlier, uh, that this is commonplace throughout. It's because these factions, which have now coalesced around financial interest, cut across uh, um, uh, geography, right? It's local, provincial, as well as national. In PE, in PE, the Cooper guys, Cooper was a, a, a regional secretary from 2008, uh, responsible for the, for the corruption, massive corruption there, uh, was in alliance with Oscar Mabuyane, who's now the chairperson and premier. Uh, and Mabuyane was in alliance with uh, Gwede Mantashe. Uh, the evidence of this you see when Zanukolo Waile becomes becomes mayor in 2010. 
who was part of that faction but got tired of it and wanted to clean up things uh, as part of Kosato realizing that they needed to do things differently. So Zanukolo Waile gets into this campaign to, to fight out corruption and then they want to get rid of him. Uh, and guess who is in the forefront to get rid of Waile? Uh, it's Oscar Mabuyane. They frustrated Derek Hanekom, who was an, an NEC employee there trying to make peace. And Mabuyane was in the forefront to get rid of Waile, mainly because Waile wanted to act on the Picoli and the Koboso reports. Um, and then if you're looking for evidence of Mandasha's involvement there, you fast forward to 2014, when you know things had really uh, declined. It was a mess, a serious mess. So you have a coalition, a civil society coalition, mobilizing a government outside the Eastern Cape to intervene. They write to all sorts of people to ever care to listen. And part of the reason why they were appealing to everybody else was because the SG's office, where the Mantashe was unresponsive to their pleas, to intervene. It took JZ, actually. JZ took the initiative to disband the Kupe Regional Executive Committee in 2014 because Mantashe was just downright uninterested because it was his faction that was messing up in PE. So you have an alliance, right, that cuts across regions. So structures that are meant to exercise oversight over the you know that these 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 uh, structures lower lower down who are doing the wrong things uh, are themselves implicated. They are part of that mess. Uh, that is why today in PE, Andile Lungisa, who's been convicted, whom everyone uh, says is bad news, uh, and the PEC has been saying he must step, he must withdraw as an MMC, has refused to step down. And uh, because he is supported by Isma Khashul. Isma Khashul and Andile are pretty much part of the same WhatsApp group, right? So these alliances, Ivo, uh, you know, so it's, it's not just one part of the organization that has gone rotten. It's the entire organization. It has become a cartel. You know, each person has something on the other person. This is, this is pretty bleak stuff. Um, and I, and I'm thinking now from the perspective that, you know, Objectively speaking, South Africa is in a, is in a very deep and fundamental crisis. Uh, I think some people have even called it existential, um, uh, both economically, socially, medically. Uh, COVID has raised and has brought to the surface uh, the deep malaise in all sorts of areas of, of, of government and the state. It seems going forward, um, we need to somehow be able to operate what you call programmatically. In other words, they need to be able to, we need to be able to reach consensus around certain kind of developmental plans, economic plans, and we need to be able to implement them. From what I'm hearing from you and also from, 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 from Crispian is that the degree of contestation within the ANC as the dominant party means that all, all these, all this planning is kind of pipe dreams. Uh, um, and that the likelihood is that any attempt to try and operate programmatically is going to result in this kind of very fierce and dysfunctional contestation, which leaves South Africa in a rather terrifying, terrifying place. Is that essentially what you're saying? And if it is, then, yeah, well, is that what you're saying? Or, or is there a way out of this mess? 
for both of you, for Crispin and for you and for Maurice. Just to comment on the contestation, um, you know, we've the sort of uh, traditional narrative has been that the ANC is too dominant, that it runs these programs from their regional and provincial offices, um, and it's seen as a problem of too much power. Uh, I think it's a problem of too little uh, power and uh, too fractured uh, uh, an organization. So any leader that's in power in the ANC knows that there's another 100 aspirant leaders jostling to get where they are. And they're forced into ever shorter term calculations. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've got a slightly um, elastic approach to the way rents get used. I, I, I'm not opposed to using the state using certain rents to actively build a new black industrial uh, bourgeoisie. Um, uh, I think, you know, most, most of the successful developmental states across the developing world have used rents generated by the state to advantage new claimants and rights holders. Um, but the successful ones are able to demand performance from the new classes that these rents are being allocated to. And to be able to demand performance, and if someone's not performing, take rents away and give it to someone else, you've got to be strong. You need, you need a level of authority and power in relation to those aspirants. And I think the ANC is a weak organization. I think it's fractured. It's been provincialized and regionalized. And all the way down into branches, it's this constant churn of factions wanting to uh, get their turn at the trough. So it's unable to craft and lead a developmental program. It's unable to use the advantages that the state can create for black business uh, uh, in a progressive, you know, uh, proper way. And instead, it becomes a sort of inward feeding frenzy uh, that's been called clientelism by some academics. Yes. Uh, I mean, there isn't, there isn't a shared vision. Uh, I agree there partly with, with Chippy. There isn't a shared vision. Uh, and I mean, the ANC is devoid pretty much of any strong moral figures. Um, and so it's difficult to get one person, a good guy, uh, around whom everyone can coalesce because most of the good guys have been driven out. Uh, it's difficult to remain a good guy in the ANC because you have to, you have to withstand all the attacks and it, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's, it, it requires a serious heavy lifting. So a lot of, of veterans, uh, good guys, have decided to go into the Veterans League. They are outside of the party now. And of course, they have families. So life has, you know, assumed its own uh, uh, thing as well, of course. Uh, and so you are left with these guys who, who are quite brave, uh, very energetic young guys, and they don't think twice about stealing government money. Uh, and so how do you, can you, can you come out of it? If you can have, have, uh, 
you have to get rid of the other guys pretty much. Uh, and the only way you do that, I don't think the ANC itself, they are fond of saying you can self-correct. No, that's nonsense. You need law enforcement. That's the only thing uh, that can help the ANC. Um, because the criminal elements are right in there now, right? Um, uh, Lungisa is supported by a militia in PE. Um, that threatens everybody. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you are to stand up and, and, and challenge him, you run the risk of being assassinated. So the only way you cripple that faction, that criminal faction, is if it's taken care of by the law. But the ANC on its own is going to be challenging to self-correct. It needs serious impetus from outside, uh, but not, not you won't find it from within. So what's been so interesting about today's show is that we've had two accounts, uh, one from a seasoned activist, uh, part of the team, an ANC team that went into Port Elizabeth to try and help clean it up, uh, first-hand account of, of that experience, and the second, uh, a more academic, uh, disinterested view of, of, of that politics, but coming up with very similar sorts of issues, uh, similar sorts of issues arising from, from their experience and from, and from their analysis. So the first one is the level of competition and f and, 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 and violence and, uh, and factionalism within the ANC. The second one is the degree to which that factionalism uh, infects the government of, 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 of Port Elizabeth. Now in South Africa today, what I find disturbing is that we take that symmetry between the factionalism of the ANC and the factionalism inside government as a kind of given. But the problem is there's no automatic uh, follow-through that the factionalism in the one place leads to factionalism in the other. In most places in the world, and including in parts in South Africa, party politics is insulated from what happens in government. So you can have a factionalized uh, party, but that doesn't necessarily mean that factionalism plays out in the administration. So the question is, why has that happened in South Africa? So this is one of the key questions which we need to explore in South Africa, because that's understanding that relationship that really helps us understand a state capture, but generally the state of, the state of corruption in our administrations. I think from the podcast we've learned, for example, that one of the ANC's policies is around deployment of party political officials into administrations as officials, and that's definitely one of the conduits which allows for the politicization of, 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 of these kinds of administrations in the kind of factionalized ways which we've heard today. And it does seem to suggest that going forward, this is one of the key areas we need to tackle. Well, thank you very much. It's been a really fascinating, strong debate about the deeper issues affecting South African politics and government. Thank you for listening to this Filling the Gap podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this on social media.